Hey folks, Chris from The Bike Shed here with just a quick announcement before we jump into this episode. ThoughtBot is hiring, and I think you should apply. More specifically, we're hiring for a range of developer positions, including Rails, Elixir, and React Native, across our offices in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, Raleigh, and London. ThoughtBot offers great benefits and time off, and we're truly serious about sustainable pace and making sure folks have time for life outside of work. That said, I think something that makes ThoughtBot stand out is that we focus just as much on making our work pace sustainable as well. You may have heard us talk about it a bit on the show, but at ThoughtBot, we work on client projects four days a week, and then we take Fridays to work on internal projects, learn new technologies, and work on open source. I can't say enough good things about having this time be part of our weekly schedule and making sure we have room for growth as individuals and as a team. Now, if you're concerned that your skills are not quite where they need to be, we also have an apprentice program, which is a paid three-month position with benefits, where you'll be paired with three different ThoughtBot mentors over the three months to help round out your skills and learn the ropes. Many of our apprentices have gone on to join ThoughtBot full-time, so this is a great option if you're newer to the world of being a developer but still interested in possibly working at ThoughtBot. I've personally worked at ThoughtBot for almost six years, and I can't imagine working anywhere else. So if you think you might be interested in working with me or any of the other great ThoughtBotters I've been chatting with for the past few episodes, head on over to thoughtbot.com jobs and let us know. I'll communicate with you. We'll use Koala communication. and Koala? Uh, koala is the symbol that Tom and I use for yes, thank you, good. It basically means all things that aren't bad. The one bear that isn't a bear? Mm-hmm. Is the drop bear a bear? Ooh. The drop bear is mythical, so it can be whatever. Whoa, 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 friend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I can abide mm-hmm. that sort of heresy. Yep, they all dropped off the earth. Are you a Discworld guy? <laughs> I'm going to go with Discworld and not Flat Earth. Cause <laughs> it's the whole, like, Australia being upside down. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yep. gravity. How does it even work? Much like <laughs> magnets, we don't know. It's a miracle. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. Today I'm joined by Matt Sumner, fellow developer here in the Boston office. Thanks for joining us, Matt. You are welcome. So you have recently joined onto a new project. You are working on the blockchain. Yeah, well, a blockchain. A, right. I don't know how blockchains <laughs> there are. There are many blockchains. There are so many blocks on the chains and there are blocks that aren't on the chains is something I found out. And you want to get them on the chains. And everyone wants to get their blocks on the chains, but not everyone can have their block on the chain. Makes sense. So the blockchain... Ooh, let's dive right into it. A blockchain. Well, there is a canonical blockchain that everyone needs to agree on. If you might imagine a tree structure. I might. Of, of blocks, but not chains. But <laughs> okay. the, the tree sort of layout. Yep. So everyone's trying to get blocks onto their tree. Okay. The blockchain is the one path from the root to a leaf node that is the best. To rule them all. Yep. That makes sense. That That is that roughly my understanding. Yeah. I didn't know that there were other blocks. I had read like a they couple ca- of... They call them omers. Who does what? <laughs> the other blocks that oh. aren't on the chain. That, wait, is that an acronym? Uh, no, it's the gender neutral term for aunt or uncle. Oh. So a block will have several omers or no omers. There might be none. Right. You said it stand up this morning, a bunch of words, and everyone just kind of looked at you with their heads tilted. <laughs> yep. So you're writing an elixir on this? Yes, that's right. And you're an you're, uh, um, Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Working with uh, the lovely Herman, who mm-hmm. uh, is also on the project, and he is doing a great job of guiding me through all of the blocks and all of the chains. All of the blocks. Well, there's the one, uh, right. as we discussed. <laughs> yep. I can talk about other things that are in the blockchain, that maybe the things I mentioned at stand up. 
like the fact that we're trying to prevent the Ice Age. Right, yeah, what does that mean? So, my understanding, which is limited, is that uh, there's sort of like a built-in exponential increase in difficulty for adding blocks to the chain. Mm -hmm. So, as time moves forward, it gets harder and harder to keep going. And I think that was added by design to make sure that we could stop using work as a measurement of what is best. This is the distinction between proof of work and proof of authority? Uh, yes, although I believe Ethereum is looking at a third option, which is proof of, they put in like a cost, proof of, oh God, it's totally escaped me. We have show notes for this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so there are multiple sort of strategies for deciding which block is the best block or like how you might put a block onto the chain. Mm. And difficulty is sort of like the canonical, that's what everyone's been using, and that's what most blockchains are sort of built using, is this idea that you need to spend a certain amount of computational power, like solve a sufficiently complex puzzle to get a block on the chain. Which does seem wasteful. Well, that's why there are explorations into other options. When you said Ice Age, is that a term of art from the world, or is that a joke at the fact that we will cause the heat death of the universe this way? Oh, uh, no idea. It's unknowable. Okay. Uh, someone could Google. <laughs> someone, someone could, could find could. out. I don't know the etymology uh, of it. Okay, so you've just been presented with the term Ice Age, and you're like, mm -hmm. all right, that seems good. Yeah, I seems get it. reasonable. Like, <laughs> that is the point at which it would take more than 30 seconds for a block to be added to the chain. These numbers are not, like, completely arbitrary. Mm -hmm. They are somewhat arbitrary. But there is this goal of wanting to keep adding blocks to the blockchain at a consistent rate that isn't too fast and also isn't too slow. And so Ethereum has chosen the sort of sweet spot of 15 seconds. So like every 15 seconds, there is a new block added to the chain. Mm -hmm. But the Ice Age, I may be completely getting this wrong, wrong, but I believe the Ice Age starts once it takes 30 seconds for blocks to be added to the chain. Oh, so when the computational effort has increased such that the time necessary to add a block to the chain reaches that point... That makes sense. The cold ice. slowing down, because right. I was thinking of in terms of heat, although heat death is also cold, so <laughs> lots of mixed metaphors here. Right. People are still doing a lot of work, or computers are. Right. But yeah, the longer than 30 seconds Ice Age begins, but we don't want, we don't want the Ice Age. We don't. Turns out we set up, well, I say we, I'm going to keep saying we, we <laughs> set up <laughs> the Ice Age to occur, and it's coming and no one wants it anymore because we're not ready to switch over to a different proof of something. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but was it introduced as a uh, an intentional cliff? A this is We're going to set a problem in the future that we will have to solve. We don't know the answer yet, but we want to make sure we don't ignore it. That is my understanding. Okay. Um, so sort of setting this deadline, mm -hmm. if you would, mm. um, <laughs> to solve this problem of like, how do we build a blockchain that people have confidence in that it's going to not be controlled by some shadowy body while not using this concept of proof of work and instead using something else. This stuff is is very complicated. Uh, uh, when I was talking with Herman, he presented a similar summary of things and I continue to just feel like I'm, I'm so on the outside. This is a topic that I feel so removed from right. and that has so much enthusiasm, so much effort, so much, I don't even want to say the word hype because I feel like that one has negative connotations. There's a ton going on here, and I'm just, I'm over here like, well, I'll just, I'm writing a Rails app today. That seems fun. Yeah. I am both enjoying and sort of 
feeling outraged by the amount of terminology mm. there is and like the amount of words that get sort of thrown around and they have meaning in this context but without the context it sounds like gibberish mm. so i i can give you a few more uh so ethereum isn't itself a currency gonna throw this out here yep. what i said may be wrong that's i think that one's true okay. that sounds true to me so they have a currency mm-hmm. on the ethereum blockchain and it's made up of ether okay so ether is like the unit of value that gets traded around but Ether can be broken up into smaller denominations. Mm-hmm. So if you break down by a factor of a thousand, you have a Finny. And if you continue breaking down by another factor of a thousand, you have a Sasbo. 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 Seems like the obvious continuation of the S- progression. S-Z-A-B-O. And then the smallest unit of denomination is the Wei. W-E-I. And the way is uh, an ether is one times 10 to the 18 way. And in the code that we're writing, we're always dealing in way hmm. from what I can tell. Wow. Yeah. Very far removed. Whew. It's sort of an inherent fixed inflation or fixed sort of size to the currency, which seems interesting. Yeah. There's also like several different units for measuring value. It's not just this currency unit. Mm-hmm. There's also the idea of gas, which I think is referencing gasoline, which in the UK most people call petrol. Have you seen the movie Waterworld? No. I just feel like there, there's, there's some reference to be made here, but unfortunately... I've seen, no. I've seen Mad Max. Is there yeah, a... Yeah, similar. Very, okay. very similar. It's yeah. a world where... Just know, more water. Much more water, yeah. <laughs> Significantly more Kevin Costner as well. Ooh. Oh, also we're specifically delaying the Ice Age by one and a half years. I thought that was like... <laughs> <laughs> was there like a meeting and people chose that or is that where I, we're at right that's now? That's literally what it says. There's there's like a council of all interested parties or sure. something decided to delay the Ice Age by approximately one and a half years. And so everyone who is implementing a Ethereum, I don't know if it's a client or if they're called something else, the nodes that mm-hmm. are basically these distributed ledgers. Everyone who's implemented one of those needed to implement, like, this delay in the Ice Age. They all had to agree. There had to be consensus between them. Uh, Probably. The the word (laughs) consensus is one of those loaded ones. (laughs) I feel like I've used that word in external context and it had a meeting, but yeah. Yep. I've also been talking about the Byzantinium fork, which is the fork that we're currently working on. I don't actually know what the word fork means. I think... (laughs) It's sort of these points where they decide, like, past this block number on the main blockchain, that block number is sort of variable depending on which environment you're in. So there's, like, a test mm-hmm. um, blockchain that will have mm-hmm. different numbers for these forks. But there are, like, these forks where it says, like, past this block number, we're going to be using the new implementation. And so a lot of the code that we're writing or that, like, anyone who's writing one of these implementations has to put into their systems is basically like checking what block number you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And if it's before these various forks, then you do one implementation. You you do the old implementation. Mm -hmm. And if it's past one of these forks, you do the new one, which is just like so bizarre. (laughs) I mean, that comes up in programming from time to time when there are accidental non-backwards compatible changes and you might have to run on either version. But I guess it's um, 
still i, th- I feel still like it's rarer thing. because you yeah. would you would go back to your old data and update it for the new system mm. but you have an immutable history exactly yeah. and so you need to keep around which is both a wonderful thing and a complicated thing yes yeah and you need to keep it around because if you're spinning up a new node and it's going to start syncing with the rest of the blockchain mm-hmm. it's going to pull in all of the history and they have to know yeah right you have to know how to interpret that and mm-hmm. It's a very complicated world. Well, yeah, like you said, you're three days in now. Oh, three days. I know so little. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited for uh, where you are in a week and then a month. And each of those data points will be very interesting to see how your view. You're like, oh, no, I actually everything I said was wrong. Only slightly wrong, but wrong enough. And when you add them up, very wrong. (laughs) But I am enjoying the uh, sort of naive wonder Mm. that I have at the moment of the entire system. I had been telling everyone before rolling onto the project that there were two possible outcomes for when I roll off of this project. The first is that I like now understand blockchain systems mm-hmm. and can describe to everyone why they're a scam. <laughs> the second option is that all of my worldly wealth gets put into Ethereum. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a go big or go home. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a boring mundane middle option. Oh, I really hope it's not that. <laughs> I'm I'm worried for you. <laughs> uh, no, you'll you'll be fine. But again, very interested to hear as it goes. Uh, yeah. Does I think lead us in an interesting direction? Though, would you say that distributed computation is easy or difficult? Oh, difficult. My form of a segue. Right. Yeah. Definitely difficult. I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't describe it as easy. No. No. Certainly not. Because so, there were there are two options: distributed computing and not distributed computing. I mean depending on how you slice it. I think rarely in the age of the internet are we doing 0% distributed computing. That's true. But I think a topic that comes up a lot around here at ThoughtBot and more broadly in the world of development is the idea of server-side, server-rendered applications and rich Mm -hmm. client applications, React or Angular or any number of other technologies that come out every day. And the discussions sometimes get heated, so I thought we could chat a little bit about that and... uh, your feelings on the matter and what what we think makes sense. What do you what do you think about server rendering versus client side rendering, Ooh. or you know the bigger questions behind that? But right, there's a lot in there. I have a lot of thoughts. There is a lot in there. So I th- it is not a dichotomy. I don't think. Right, I don't think that there is one to rule them all. I think it makes sense in a lot of cases to have server rendered HTML even today in 2018. Even today in 2018, but I think that there are also a multitude of apps that don't make sense as simply server-rendered HTML. Hmm. I think the decision to split your application into a sort of a server-side and client-side parts is one where you need to take account of the cost for doing that. Like, it's not something you can do for free. Mm-hmm. But what you get for paying that cost is all the richness of those client-side frameworks and libraries and worlds that you could live in. We had a conversation a number of episodes back about service-oriented architecture, and I feel like this one parallels that in that this is not a simple decision and there's not a correct answer. There's not an obviously correct answer in my mind. In the case of services, we sort of lean in the direction of at least starting with a monolith and starting with what we believe to be the simpler thing and then growing away from that. And I think, if anything, the thing that we resist the most is the idea that a service-oriented architecture is a given, is the only reasonable way to build applications at this point in the year 2018 and onward. Very similarly, I think there's a lot of 
interest, a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement around some of the client-side technologies and things like Rails or other server render technologies are seen as a bit older, a bit boring. And so I think, if anything, a lot of our reactions would be like, that's still a very valid technology choice. Right. It's actually a fantastic one that, particularly for clients that come to us that want to get to market quickly, that want to iterate rapidly and figure things out. Uh, And I don't think this is unique to our clients. I think this is most businesses are in this position. Server rendering is a tried and true technique. It is largely secure. It's easier to secure, I'd say. There are all of these benefits that fall out of of simplicity and whatnot. But it is a trade-off. And the experience is not going to be the same. But I think it's always one of those things where you have to decide, well, where do you want to be spending your time and effort Mm -hmm. and given time your money? So like if someone is paying us to build an application and we can build a similar feature set in half the time by making it server-rendered HTML, Mm -hmm. then that might be the obvious choice. But like you said, this is like always a gray area. It's very hard to predict which direction is going to pay off. Mm -hmm. Because it's so hard to predict, it's impossible to say we should always be doing one or the other. Yeah, I think that sort of dogmatic belief on either side is an issue. It's not the only issue, I would say. But but yeah, there's room for certainly both. I'm a fan of a lot of the client-side technologies. I've been really enjoying explorations over the past few years, and I enjoy the richness of an application that you can build there. Uh, the responsiveness, the nature of how it feels. It feels different than a server-rendered app that has to make a round trip, particularly on mobile devices, constrained network access, things like that. You can just provide a different level of interactivity there, but it does have that cost, that complexity. I have found that given like some of the technologies that we've been exploring, the cost has been getting lower. Uh, Interesting. Is this the year of Linux on the desktop? (laughs) Is this the year of client-side apps on the desktop? (laughs) So one of my recent client projects was a React app using GraphQL on the back end. And I regret not introducing TypeScript to that project Mm -hmm. really early on. Uh, But we did use prop types for all of our components. And it was a very, like, component-heavy application. There wasn't a lot of sort of functions outside of that space. And so GraphQL was even then giving us a lot, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have any of the sort of strong type stuff for free. For anyone who's not familiar with GraphQL, I'm sure you are if you've been listening to this podcast because that's (laughs) all Chris talks about. I say other things. (laughs) It is a alternative to REST. It gives you a strongly typed schema of the data that's available from your server. And so you can say with some certainty, if you ask for a certain query, what you're going to get back. And not only sort of the shape of that data, but also what that data's types are going to be. So if you ask for like IDs, you're going to know if that's a string or an integer or a number. Interestingly, in GraphQL, IDs are integers encoded as strings. (laughs) So that's a funny one. I mean, it's clear. It's actually a distinct scalar type called ID. Called ID. But it's funny that that was your example. Again, though, Um, it is constrained and and it will be enforced across the boundary. It just, I found it funny that that was the example. Um, (laughs) Because it still holds true. Right. It still is correct and it still can be enforced by both sides of that contract. So it's it's fine. It's actually a great example of we're sort of doing a weird thing here, but it works because everyone is clear about the weird thing that they're doing. Right. Whereas in JavaScript, we often do weird things and we're not so clear about mm-hmm. the weird things that we're doing. Yes. If you use TypeScript throughout your application, you can um, have the client that we were using, which is Apollo client, generate the types, the sort of shape of the data that's going to be returned mm-hmm. from each of your queries. 
But because we were using prop types, we had to sort of wire that up ourselves yep. and say like, no, no, we promise that what we're passing in here is going to be this shape. Right. And we could say that with some certainty, but because it still required like human intervention, there's an edge where errors could be introduced. Right. Having said that, most of it went swimmingly. Mm -hmm. It was excellent. I really enjoyed having that level of certainty in my system. Yep. And it definitely caught bugs that I, as a human being, would have just not found. Turns out we're not great at some of those things, but right. computers are. So I enjoyed that a lot. And it's disappointing to not see this kind of innovation on the server-rendered HTML front. As a sort of counterexample, I was also recently on a Scala project. Scala does have a lot of very like strongly typed sort of system, well... It has a strong type system. It has a strong type system. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. And I didn't see the same sort of tooling on building HTML as I do in React. Like there wasn't that same sort of editor level, hey, the thing that you're passing in here is, you know, slightly off. Hmm. Like there was that chance of sort of runtime errors or the things slipping through that I wouldn't have expected. That's interesting. I would not have expected that to be your experience in Scala. I would right. expect Scala to have a more robust correctness ensuring experience, but that's interesting that that's not the case. Right. As you were describing that, I think there are probably a couple of different pieces to this discussion that often, often we sort of describe it as there is this dichotomy of either server rendered HTML, boring and old, or mm -hmm. new client rendered everything great, wonderful, responsive. But I think there are a couple of different pieces that are inherent to this. One is JavaScript, just inherently as a technology, as, as a language. JavaScript has had a long, interesting history. It's come a huge way, I would say, but it's still a language with more type coercion, more subtlety, more rough edges, bugs, things like that. And so historically, I would not have felt comfortable using JavaScript on large applications. Mm -hmm. It still happened a lot because so much of the world was moving in that direction. But historically, JavaScript had been a complicated thing. Um, but I think with the advent of things like ESLint, TypeScript, all of these other languages that are compiling to JS, the idea of JavaScript actually as sort of a compilation target becomes really interesting as it's more of a, it's the web runtime, although we actually have WebAssembly now, so we're even taking that a step further. Right. But the idea of raw ES3, like JavaScript from, say, eight or more years ago, that scares me. The things that we're writing now, I'm having more and more confidence in due to the, the buildup of the tooling. So that starts to shape the conversation in a different way in my mind. Similarly, what you were just talking about, about API design, I absolutely love REST for the design of document systems, I guess is the best way, websites basically. Right. And if I'm in a Rails app or any app that is presenting information at URLs, I will still, REST is still the guiding light in my mind there. But now that I've experienced GraphQL, now that I've, I've worked in that world, taken sort of a, a hard left, mm -hmm. I don't know that it feels right for APIs. In fact, I've, I think we've always felt sort of a mismatch there. And like JSON API as a project was something that attempted to solve this and didn't go particularly well. And mm -hmm. using JSON active model serializers within Rails, that project was a heroic effort to try and bring sanity and consistency and just didn't quite get there. And so that, like the API layer, is also an interesting one where I feel like we're getting to a better place. Right. Something that I have found really interesting, like talking about that getting to a better place and sort of REST maybe not being the best choice for these kinds of applications. On the same Scala project that I mentioned before, mm -hmm. we were interacting with a SOAP API. And I have never had any interactions with SOAP at mm -hmm. all. 
But one of the things that that did have was like some typing around it. Yep. I could never like as a human being go and look at sort of the request response cycle and sort of understand at the kind of level that you do with JSON what was going on. Or it's very clear, it's very human readable whereas SOAP was a little more machine readable. Likely. Right. There was a lot of generated code. Right. to interface with that. Mm-hmm. And it was actually one of the reasons that we decided to use Scala on that project is because of this SOAP interaction that we needed to have. Right. And having a Java sort of generated code that we could then feed into Scala mm-hmm. was very valuable and totally the right choice in that situation. Right. Having said that, like I see some of the same things that we're trying to achieve with GraphQL mm-hmm. already in there. Yeah. So this idea of like generating codes to like produce your schema and like being able to generate files that say like this is what the endpoint is returning to me is the shape of the data so that I can run that against my tests. Mm-hmm. I was sort of reinventing those things, but in this SOAP context rather than GraphQL right. to get the certainty that my code was working. Yeah, it's interesting to see that GraphQL is in a lot of ways just a reorganization of ideas that have existed for a long time. And I mean, you can say that across most of computing. It's just a question of who gains popularity. And I think SOAP particularly, I worked with it briefly. Uh, Didn't leave a great taste in my mouth, no pun intended, but uh, actually pun intended if being honest. (laughs) But I think some of what happened to it probably was related to reactions to Java and XML, Mm -hmm. which XML is also a technology that is sort of doesn't get a lot of love, but it's fine. We yeah. use HTML and we like that one, but XML for some reason is viewed as bad and JSON is good, whereas JSON is a strictly less capable language. Right. Language isn't even the right word. Format? Structure. Format? Format, maybe, mm. yeah. But I see us like slipping deeper. Like I can see a future <laughs> where everyone complains about GraphQL. Like it was so, like we just needed to simplify, like it built too far. Mm-hmm. Sort of that thing of like history repeating itself. Yep. And so I wonder if we should be exploring some of these older things to try and learn from the mistakes of our ancestors. Mm. You mean like 12 years ago? <laughs> it's a short Ooh. lifespan in this world. We, we forget things far too quickly. I think, I, yeah, broadly, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And mm. I believe if you were to talk to the folks who were involved, my guess is that GraphQL directly was based on those influences. It wasn't a rediscovery mm. of technologies. It was likely a huh, I wonder why aren't we doing that? And, you know, someone yeah. had read something or had familiarity and was able to bring this forth. I don't actually know that to be true. I've I've not heard that in any of the talks from some of the creators, but I would be surprised if there wasn't some borrowing from history rather than true reinvention. Yeah, I didn't like SOAP. <laughs> I should so SOAP say was that. a less good GraphQL. Yeah, it was mind. a less good yeah. GraphQL. They seem to have probably refined a few things and, and made it quite nice. And I think Graphical, the nice interactive editor that just Ooh. lets you poke at mm-hmm. a GraphQL API, is such a fantastic demo and learning environment. It's so discoverable that I think that alone gives GraphQL such a wonderful advantage. Mm-hmm. In conversations I've had with folks about this, someone was talking about SOAP and said, well, yeah, but you have this code reflection. You can just generate the clients that you need and everything works well. But it, to me, that just is not the same thing. That doesn't have a visceral, emotional response from me. Like, that's right. neat, but it generated some code. And then I can put that code into my system, and I can wire it up, and I could probably render something to the screen related to interacting with an API. But with Graphical, you open up the Magic website, and it lets you interact with this API in such a rich, immediate way mm-hmm. that 
it's that idea of reducing the feedback loop down to almost nothing. Yes. And I think that alone is probably one of the things that has helped GraphQL gain the adoption and gain the mind share. Right. Because otherwise, I remember when I first heard about it, it sounded like nonsense. Right. But I think a lot of that machinery is just hidden away. Like there is the weird query that is like, this is the query that tells me everything about the schema of your system. Um, like, and that sort of gets embedded in a web app and then you like open the web app and then it gives you like all of the information. My understanding with the sort of SOAP clients back in the day is that there was a similar explorer, but it was one of these like who installed desktop applications <laughs> that you would need to put on your Microsoft Windows computer. Yep. And then you could do sort of that similar kind of exploration mm. where you could say like, oh, okay, poke, 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 what's the kind of thing that I can get from this endpoint, right. uh, from this system? That's interesting. Um, actually, looping back based on something that you just said, looping back to the discussion around client-side versus server-side. So we've talked a little bit about JavaScript and language, the effect that that has. We've talked about API as a design constraint and having to figure that out and some of the steps that we've made there. We've also talked a little bit about distributed computing and just the inherent nature of that, that that adds complexity. So like the first two, I feel like we've gotten better on. The third one, not so much. That's just an inherently harder problem to solve. But the last thing, one of the things that really stands out to me and a reason that I keep trying that I keep searching in this world to find the best way to build client-side apps because I sort of care about it is the web as an application delivery mechanism. The idea that I can go to a URL and have an app, quote unquote, an app boot up mm -hmm. is magical. Like you were just right. describing, oh, well, yes, but you had to download and install this application. That's effort. That's a thing that you have to do. Whereas right. URLs are fantastic. Mm -hmm. I love them. <laughs> and the fact that I can just use one to open up an app an app that allows me to order food or buy things or play a game or read a document or collaborate with my peers or do any of these things. And so much functionality is exposed to me by virtue of just this string of characters that I can type in or mm -hmm. never type it in because who remembers URLs? I copy and paste from a place to another place. But right. that is magical in my mind. And so I, I can't downplay that enough of the idea that like that rich behavior that I want if that's constrained only to the world of true apps, true installed either on a mobile device or on the desktop, mm -hmm. I don't want that constraint. No, I agree. I do love the existence that we now have, like this ability to basically install applications by visiting a website. Yep. And that, that is like truly magical. Mm. I think the interesting thing is that the transition to that world, we maybe lost some of the ideas in that movement from having like installed web applications with where we were building software in a certain way, mm -hmm. transitioning to a world where like, hey, we can just have applications on the web and like someone can just visit a URL and it will like magically install it and they can start using it. We had to simplify certain things. We had like different constraints. Mm -hmm. And we're now sort of getting to the point where we can start bringing back some of those really powerful concepts like with GraphQL, this idea of like typing your system and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Oh, so which, you're talking about some of the historical, the manner in which you had to build the apps was more constrained, was less supportive, it, specifically JavaScript and the the runtime, both in terms of performance and in terms of language features right. was constrained. And so we needed to like rebuild yep. a lot of this stuff back up. You know, it's all academic at this point, but it, it was interesting seeing similar ideas that I had considered new. Mm-hmm 
sort of presenting themselves. So to shift gears just a little bit, I think we've talked a lot about some of the trade-offs that are inherent because I think this is a classic it depends discussion. But I think more and more we're seeing applications built using client-side technologies. And I think there are some things that we're losing along the way, some things that we're forgetting that were perhaps easier in a traditionally server-rendered app. The two main ones that come to mind are accessibility, focusing on that in a real way, and the other is URLs. I care deeply about both of those things, and I see a lot of JavaScript applications where things just don't work along with the web. So I I love the web as a platform to try and share applications, but the idea that now things are slightly less good makes me sad. And so Mm -hmm. particularly with URLs, the idea that any piece of content, any state of the application, if we want to think about it in terms of the rich client-side things, ideally that's represented in the URL, such that if you bookmark, if you command click, if you do any number of things, you will see the same state of the application rendered. I think we're, we're, again, getting better with this, but this has not always been particularly well managed in JavaScript applications. You mentioned that you think this is something that is getting better. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're almost at the stage where it's not a problem anymore. Like the number of apps that I use day to day where the URL like is broken fundamentally, like I cannot use it in a reasonable way, has shrunk over time. Like it has steadily gotten smaller. I think it's definitely moved in the right direction. There are still applications that I find that I'm surprised that the URL state does not reflect what I believe to be a a clearly distinct state of the application or what I would describe as I'm now on a different page Mm -hmm. is not a different URL. Right. So I still do run into that. But uh, again, it has gotten much better. The two things that I think stand out most in that are the addition of push state to the actual HTML think it's html or it's in javascript but i think it's a dom api okay the specifics of that are irrelevant push state actually being a real way to manipulate the url right from javascript but to do so in a way that is essentially transparent to the end user such that they feel like they're navigating from page to page and everything works the way it's expected command click works bookmarking Mm. works refreshing the page all of those things work as expected so from a technological standpoint there was a period where that just wasn't true uh the hash bang the bad years of the hash bang right The dark times. (laughs) The dark times. We fixed that, and I think that's supported everywhere at this point, everywhere that is part of the the core 99.9% of web usage. Additionally, I want to particularly highlight the work that Ember as a project did, because I think they Mm -hmm. were a project that puts a very significant focus on the idea of URLs, URLs driving the state of the application. And I think other frameworks have since adopted similar mentalities, or at least had library component sort of things introduced to support that, but it was an effort. Again, it was them saying, like, we want to take this seriously, so we're going to write documentation, put specific handling in our code. People had to try, Mm -hmm. whereas on the server, you absolutely can go crazy with URLs, but it's a little harder to be like, this URL is actually going to do five different things or represent five different states to describe it that way. Yes, and I think that's that was sort of like inherent to the way that clients were interacting with servers. Is like the URL was, this is where I want to go. Like, yep. please, Mr. Server, give me what is at this location. And it was just far more difficult to sort of build any sort of interactions or change any state without making a change there. Mm-hmm. And so having that constraint of like, how do I send messages back and forth and having like the URL be something that is a variable in that world mm-hmm. made it very natural for people to use that to represent this is the state that I want or mm-hmm. give me the current status of this thing at this URL. Just made it so solid and natural mm-hmm. 
to use it in that way. And then moving to sort of a client side world, because you now have much of that state and much of the knowledge of the world there on your clients, it's very easy to make state changes and move around and change the sort of overall existence of your application without ever referencing the URL Mm -hmm. that we kind of slipped into the habit of not updating it. Right. I really enjoyed learning Ember before React because it had a lot of those concepts that we had solidified on the web mm-hmm. built into the framework. Right. While also sort of trying to bring some of the new, you know, let's build things in components style stuff and mm-hmm. all of those sorts of concepts. Yeah, I think they did a heroic job there and then mm-hmm. like React Router in that world or some of the variants therein, but they all sort of were informed by that. And I think Angular also has has moved to something that's much closer to the Ember Router. But Broadly, just the idea that they brought to the forefront of the conversation, the idea that your application state should be a function of the URL. That's, right. that's a thing that we should do. Although I will say, I, I was working on a an app that's part of a, the demo for a talk that I'm going to be giving, and I recognized that it was behaving sort of weirdly when I moved between pages. And then I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, oh, right, I'm not updating the URL. Whoops. <laughs> uh, and I, I, like, I so easily fell into the trap of not doing this correctly, and I feel like... Huh. When I'm working on client apps, similar to the URL, I think accessibility is also one that sort of falls to the wayside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, they interestingly work together in that often the way to interact with an application is to click a link, which changes the URL, which has the side effect of transitioning the app to a new state. But often it's just so easy to like click a button and have it do something. Right. I, I think that is another aspect that some folks will will highlight and say, like this is a problem with client-side apps. Mm-hmm. And I sort of agree with that one. I try very hard to learn and to understand the things that are at play there, like the idea of using a form. Even though you're going to handle the submitting of the form differently, the semantic meaning of a form as a piece of markup changes. Like if you hit enter in an input box, uh, in like a text box, it should submit the form. That's the default behavior. But if you just put a bunch of inputs on your page inside of a div, that will not happen. Right, And so then you see people writing custom code on their input that says if someone, if on key down and the event.keycode is 64 or whatever it is for mm-hmm. enter, uh, like I almost know that one off the top of my head because I've seen it so much. And that's an example of we're re-implementing these, these fundamental features of the web in some cases because we moved into this different paradigm. Huh. But that's not necessary. And if anything, it's detrimental and screen readers have difficulty I use Vimium on my computer to interact with the web, and it's very clear to me which apps were built with, I wouldn't even say necessarily accessibility in mind, but just using the functionality of the web, using HTML and using links to indicate navigation, using buttons to indicate actual changes in state mutation or anything like that. Right. Uh, when that's done correctly, Vimium is it's wonderful to navigate an app like that, but often I'll hit F, which is the key to show me all of the things on the screen that I can interact with. And some pages just light up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> and some pages, there's one at the top. Yeah. Like, oh, all right, fine. I guess I'll use the mouse. But I have that option. And yeah. some people don't have the option. And so I almost like to force myself into that mode, partly because I enjoy interacting with things via the keyboard. I prefer it. But also, it helps me as a developer put accessibility a little bit more in front of myself on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis. I've heard of developers using constrained, like I dial my processor speed down in my app and I dial down the, so Chrome has a setting where you can say, reduce the CPU speed and reduce the network speed. And then, 
okay, wow. that tells yeah. a different story, particularly with applications that have a lot of loading states and things like that. You suddenly mm-hmm. see that like there are seven different loading indicators on this page, and they all <laughs> pop at different times, <laughs> which yeah. these are all like those concerns don't exist in a server rendered app, at least the loading ones that I just described. Right. Because that's handled by the client itself. Uh, like a browser while the page is loading. There is some default, like, it's very little. It's just, like, sort of, like, usually a loading bar at the top of the screen. Oh, well, there's that. There's also the fact that you're getting all of the content typically in one payload. Right. And then things like images are natively lazy loaded. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, behavior like that. The browser has some... The, the browser, as a piece of technology, is one of the more amazing things I have right. ever encountered in my life. The fact that it works, the fact that it works so well, the fact that it can handle any variant of HTML that we throw at it, we're like, I forgot to close three quarters of the tags on my page, but it sort of renders something that's vaguely correct still. And to do that performantly and uh, absolute feat of engineering there. (laughs) Actually, going back to the talking about sort of accessibility, specifically with forms, this might be diving like sort of deeper into sort of technical details. No, let's go for it. But it just made me think like, my experience, like writing forms in Ember and React and these client-side frameworks, is that it's like very painful. <laughs> like, there's a lot of sort of manual wiring up that you mm-hmm. do, usually by creating small components. Like, now I'm going to have an input component. Mm-hmm. And when someone types in the input component, I want it to update some state of that component. Right. Or I want it to pass it up, or I want it to do this. Yep. And it made me wonder, like, is there any reason we don't just use normal forms and only hook onto the on submit and then slice out the data right like specifically i remember in like ember there was a lot of cases where you would have to think about clearing out those values if you went away without submitting the form right you had to handle that right which is not a thing that would exist if you were a (laughs) server rendered app I'll agree. My experience with form libraries in general has been less than ideal. It feels like both a lot of code for also still not a perfect implementation. Right. And I do find that surprising. I, actually, the idea of what if we just used a form is a classic Matt Sumner answer. I like it. I'm sad I haven't thought of it earlier. Like, I, I would actually be very interested in trying it. I think it could work quite well. Yeah. Particularly well-structured HTML such that each input has a name attribute that you can hook into and then you can catch the data that's coming up and serialize it. I think there are native DOM functions for saying, like, for well, this yeah. form dot serialize. Well, when, when you submit a form, you'll get basically a hash of the data. So you'll get, like, this is what the form contained. As long as you built, like, a HTML form, mm-hmm. all of your inputs are enclosed. If you submit via enter, if you submit by clicking the submit button, you'll still get the same, like, submit that you can hook into. So mm-hmm. you can say, like, on submit do, like, and then a function that takes in whatever data was submitted with the form. Well, I think in that case, you'd get an event. Right. A DOM event, which that event has, like, event.target would be the form. And then from there, I think there's a function to serialize the form. Mm -hmm. And that would give you back a JavaScript object representation of the data in the form. Right. I think that's true, although the last time I did that was in jQuery, and I don't know what magic jQuery had (laughs) put in the way between me and that form. But, yeah, I think this is a very sane idea. Right. We should try this. Hmm. Maybe that's what we'll do on Friday. Yeah. It seems like a really good idea because forms are a nightmare. Forms are a nightmare. Um, and, and there's a lot of really good effort going on to try and solve this, but it's an interesting one where I see, again, a lot of effort trying to solve it. Right. It's like, I feel like we're just searching for the right answer. And maybe that is, well, at least maybe as a first approximation. If you want things like fancy dynamic client-side validations, which is often right. a requirement, then it starts, I mean, actually HTML has that in the specification, so you could kind of lean on those, but... 
I don't know, clients often don't want it to look like the default <laughs> browser. <laughs> like, but we want our consistent branded one, which is understandable, but also complicated. Right. But I could see like you are quickly building out some sort of maybe even an admin feature or mm -hmm. something that isn't all that important that it looks great. Yeah. Or maybe you're even building out just the first version of it. Which we believe in strongly. Right. And you, but you have decided like, okay, for 90% of this app, it makes sense for it to be a client-side application. Mm -hmm. I want that rich interaction. But now I need to introduce this like tiny little form and I just want it to be done. Like maybe you could just use an HTML form. I'm super into it. I want to try it. And not like give up on the whole client-side thing. It might solve all of our problems, Chris. Wow. We might just fix everything. What a perfect rubber ducking podcast session we've had here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I think that's probably a good point to wrap things up. Anything yeah. else you want to uh, add to the discussion I'm to just, cap this off? I'm just so pleased. You're psyched? With, yeah. Tune in next time where we <laughs> determine whether or not this was a terrible idea. Oh, yeah. It's almost <laughs> certainly a bad idea. But that's fine. you got to have a bunch of bad ideas, and then eventually you get a good one. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Matt, and chatting about all things client-side, blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. This is yeah. great. I really enjoyed it. We should, uh, we should do it again. Absolutely. But not too soon. <laughs> sure. <laughs> one last note before you head off. I'll be speaking at Boston React Conference coming up September 29th and 30th, and I'd love to meet up with any of you who might also be attending. We can chat about ThoughtBot, React, Vim, or really anything else. But mostly I'm just interested in getting to know more folks who listen to the podcast. So feel free to reach out via Twitter. I'm at Chris Toomey, T-O-O-M-E-Y, or just track me down in person. Hope to see you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 171. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this episode or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. Goodbye! This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.